It is 100 Q fireworks. Q fireworks. Actually, it's not. It isn't 100. It's a little over 150 with all the interviews, the special series. But anyway, for the purpose of our our naming convention, it is 100 the pill pod. So today, Victor wow. and Eric and I will be celebrating along with some of the other voices you've heard a few times up till now. Litvik was supposed to be here today. He was almost here today, but he became suddenly indisposed. And he asked Too me bad. not he asked me not to tell you why, but I'm going to tell you. Uh, he had he had <laughs> a little bit of a out. he had a little <laughs> bit of a psychotic break because one of his students submitted uh, what he described as a pornographic midterm paper about all the angels in Milton's Paradise Lost having sex with each other, and he couldn't <laughs> handle it. What he could f- share it. I mean, <laughs> that oh would have been God. such a good thing to talk about on the podcast. It's or just I mean, that's just read it out at this point. <laughs> I I just would love to see Victor's face, like how he would respond to the student, like uh... if that's even true. I don't know, man. I would look at it and probably be disappointed. I'd be like, look, this is all really generic sex. I don't even believe you've ever been to a BDSM conference or something like that. Like, you got to fucking up the ante. I want to see, like, trees sprouting dicks and you trying to fuck them or something like that before I'm even (laughs) moderately impressed. And Milton's Paradise Lost was <laughs> the original anime, also. So exactly, like this oh is my good. You come if you come up to me and you're like, I got a sick fucking twisted mind, bro. I better, like William F. Burroughs better run for the hills after he hears you talking. Otherwise, I just am not impressed. Matt, I feel like the number of, of curse words and like sexually explicit content, like for the entire time that you've been gone, you've already like more than quadrupled what like me, Eric, and Pills have said combined since. Wait, you become more bourgeois since I was gone? Isn't that like? The yeah. contrary thing that you would expect you spec clean up our language we never use contractions anymore yeah. it's, well, it's i'm, it's I'm here to like man. george bataille the whole thing up or something <laughs> so litvik is not here but as you can hear the void has been more than filled and do not make a joke about that please we filled the I mean, I fill every void, void is, that I get in contact with, so don't worry about it. You could have said the gap has been filled. That would be so much better. We've covered <laughs> over the gap. You can hear Diego is back again. Definitely have some questions for him. Also, Chris Satur. And Chris, you've actually never been on a pill pod, I found out. Because all the episodes that, that we did, they weren't technically oh. pill pods. They were like... Mm. Microdoses, yeah. yeah. Microdoses. No. Back when we used to have that name, yeah. Back when we were... I'm very happy. I'm very happy to be here. So thanks for the invite. And as you can hear, there's a, a dark shadow covering the horizon of someone who's appeared today. We cannot yet see its form clearly, but it is a very loud shadow and its mic is not close enough to its face. <laughs> and still manages to be loud <laughs> despite that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't need things in my face in order to really make a splash. Oh. You know that, right? You know. Anyway, that, was that sexual? I I, I don't just, know. It's, I just I'm read just it that way now. I'm pretty oh, no. sure my I'm pretty sure my like you know nice guy Twitter spaces my my whole shtick is gone now just just because of Matt's you know first five minutes done and it's and it's not just us who's in here the room with <laughs> us today. We also let me see if I can do this. The CIA is here, of course. Oh, oh I've they're I always go, listening. It goes without yes. saying. Uh, what so was we that had podcast? Pod. This is Sebas. My comment is that I miss Matt because uh, Pills, Eric, and Victor are agreeing with each other way too much. 
Ah, that's what we were afraid of. I we just I became be pragmatic, like... you know. It became a pragmatist podcast. That was I like guess, mission yeah. from day one was to have disputes, not to be all kumbaya with this bullshit. I guess I am more agreeable than I realized, but like I really thought in that Richard Rory episode, like I was dunking a bunch on like dumb radical politics in that in that episode. <laughs> but I feel like people didn't. Maybe people didn't pick up on it. I don't know. Pills, you didn't tell me if any feedback that came back from that episode. I don't know. You can check the YouTube channel. But that's okay, true. first that's things true. first, there is a big news item that I think we got it cover. This is a full, or I guess not full if you include all the uh, islands, but pretty much a full North American podcast today. We have Mexico, the United States, and Canada all represented. And Armenia. Wow. <laughs> and Armenia. <laughs> also in oh, North God. America. <laughs> that's anyway, true. I'd like, I'd like to start off, uh, if we could just ask Diego... What's your take? What's your take on the pink? And th yeah. that was not sexual. <laughs> I meant the you, pink wave. That was also not sexual. You mean uh, you mean Lula in Brazil? Yes. Well, complicated, man. I mean, we still have roadblocks out of people that are just not accepting the the result of the election. Still a mess. Um, I think, to be honest with you, this is this is more than nothing a victory for the right. Not, not not as much as a victory for the left as people will normally see, because you still can go to the number of uh, deputados and senadores, like the people that actually work in the chamber in the two other powers beyond the executive power. And most of them are from the same party as Bolsonaro. So this represents a major rise of these uh neoconservative ideology in, in Latin America. And the way I see it is that the same way as um, Lula represents uh failed attempt as re at, at revolutionary politics, just as much as Biden uh, represents a failed attempt at revolutionary politics in, in, in North America. I think as much as Biden is not going to be able to change the life and change the material conditions of workers and improve the quality of life of people, uh, much of what brought Trump to power on the first turn is going to bring Bolsonaro back to power again in Brazil. That's my reading as, uh, as, as you know, this is a, is a very like a, a traditional reading from, from leftist politics in, in Latin America is that um, when the left provides a revolutionary project and under delivers, they are just foreshadowing the return of a even more reactionary right, right wing movement after them. So I think, I think that's, that's, that's what I can say. The, the other two compliments I will give to Lula is that after prison, he was a really changed man. And this is not a Will Ferrell joke that prison changed him, but it did. It feels like he came out with, with more um, absolute concepts like sovereignty, uh, building a nation project, which is nice. I, I like that type of, of discourse. I don't know if it's going to be actually be implemented at all. But what scares me is that I'm seeing in Lula the same type of uh, speech patterns I'm seeing in Petro in Colombia and Boric in Chile, which is about bringing uh, these global uh, entities like OTAN and NATO and ONU and UN to take care of the Amazon. And that's really, really dangerous for us. Um, the way I see it is that uh, the, the the Latin American geopolitical bloc needs to find a sense of unity and defend lithium and raw materials instead of bending over to to global interests and even like beyond the conspiranoid uh, point of view of, of this reading. That's what scares me. Like uh, the fact that the north the north is applauding the victory of Lula makes me really, really scared. I mean, I agree with everything that you said, but you forgot about the most important thing that this election was about, which was all the schadenfreude I got to enjoy when I saw the Bolsonaristas crying on oh, election yeah. day. That, that was, was what this was all building to. 
they were sitting there praying to their God and asking <laughs> him to save the country from the evil communists. And God responded and said, fuck y'all. And it's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to hear. It was exactly the tears that I wanted to see flow. So I agree with everything, but we should let us take a moment. Just you know, my, my family, the pain of the fascists. My family was really confused because I have a bunch of family members that are like right wing reactionaries, really ignorant. And I'm like, oh, my God, fuck it. Like, this is so bad. Lula won. And like, what? Like, Diego, you're supposed to be a communist. And I yeah, <laughs> like, yes, exactly. <laughs> like, what are you guys thinking? Like, no, we're going to become a communist country now. Like, you guys, you wish. Like, of course not. Like, this is going to go so much worse. My man. You think? Right, and is that, the same is, way is, it's the same way I feel here whenever one of my students are like, Biden is going to bring communism to the United States. So I'm like, God, I wish that was true. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. I sit there and every day I wish that was the case. But, you know, I'm just yeah. so pessimistic that it's. Uh... Yeah. Well, is that is the reason for that, uh, Diego, because of just the the institutions don't. So like because uh, just because he won the presidency, is the presidential system similar to the United States where like you need the House and the Senate to do anything or is it? How does it work? So like winning presidency kind of doesn't actually give you any legislative ability to pass meaningful stuff or is is the problem something else? No, the problem the problem is the three powers, no? Legislativo, ejecutivo, y judicial. Right. Like judiciary, legislative, and executive. Like the, the three branches of power are always like uh, fighting uh, and negotiating as much as you guys. But the difference is that you have two parties. We have like 40. Right. Well, we have three. Right. Oh, yes. So, two and technically, a half. Technically, technically, yeah. Two and, <laughs> two and, and a half. Yeah, <laughs> Matt, Matt only has two. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you have center right and right. So what would have been a, a better outcome for the election? Or was this still the best possible outcome? This is the best we can expect out of democracies in Latin America. I think, okay. I th yeah, this is like we have grown used to this shit show. And like there's there's not much we can aspire beyond that. I mean, we can aspire China to take over. That would be awesome. But uh... <laughs> That's some that's right. that's a fucking hot take right there. I mean, yeah, we're going to leave it. We're going to leave it on that hot take. That, hurt, that move take is, quickly. is burning me and right course, now. It's so Dissolve hot. It. Of course, yeah. Chris Satur has uh, muted himself because I guess Schelling doesn't have an opinion on democracy in Brazil. <laughs> oh, boy, you're going to get me into trouble for this. Nope. Okay. We are going to move on to our first <laughs> other question, which is from a young man known as uh, Lerpaderp. <laughs> Hey there, Pills. This is Lerpaderp speaking. Hey. Congratulations on the 100th episode. Thank you. You guys Ooh. have been truly life-changing, and I'm forever grateful for this amazing platform. Uh, my question for you guys is a two-parter. One is, who is everyone's favorite philosopher and why? And then secondly, who is the most influential philosopher in your life and why? Once again, congratulations. Thank you, Lerpaderp. Now, how are we going to do this? Go through one go around at a time. At a time, I call I call shelling. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll start. I'll start. I'll say, my favorite philosopher is, of course, Nietzsche, because he didn't believe in philosophy. Asterix, with no sub note. But the most important philosopher in my life is Immanuel Kant, because I spend my days forever thinking. God damn it, I wish you weren't so right. But, you know, if philosophy is about reason, he pushed it as far as it could get, and we're just picking up the crumbs still today. Who's next? I guess I could go. <clears throat> um, for me, I think my favorite would have to be Merleau-Ponty. Um, I would say my favorite and most influential. I was tough. It was tough to pick 
between Merleau-Ponty and Lacan in terms of influencing the way that I think about life. Um, those two probably change my perspective on like how I think about my own ability to engage with the world in a meaningful way to make a meaningful difference, or maybe more precisely the ways in which I can't make a meaningful difference or like the limits to how uh, I can engage with the world and like the way that the world ends up seeming to me. Um, but then I guess, I don't know that like, that's my answer for like most influential and in a way favorite, but like, I, I just have to throw in also that my, probably my favorite political philosopher is just the most basic of basic John Stuart Mills, because he just puts the arguments in their most succinct and I think persuasive way of defending kind of like philosophical liberalism in the most interesting and in the most egalitarian way. It's like, so people, you know, people who are anti-liberal will always want to point to John Locke or, uh, as like the, the paradigmatic example, but I think they don't pay enough attention. And Matt, of course, will agree with me strongly on this, on the emancipatory <laughs> potential in John Stuart Mill. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And on that note. Well, the answer for me is, uh, well, both answers really are Eric, because I mean, where would my life be without him? You know, it'd be a dark and demented and sexless place. And so really, uh, you know, I have to give credit where credit is due. Um, guilty as charged. Yeah, uh, but no, the serious answer, I suppose, uh, for the first one would be a person I'm going to call Carl Rawls. Uh, or John Marks, you can take whichever one, because uh, I'm cheating slightly. Uh, so the nice thing about John Marks uh, is, again, the synthesis uh, of interests between uh, power and justice. Uh, and I think both of these things are important. And John Marks uh, or Carl Rawls really provides us with the resources we need, both to theorize a uh, counter justice that's appropriate for our society today and interrogate the forms of power that inhibit it being realized. In terms of the person personally, who I probably have gotten the most from, uh, I'd say it goes back and forth between being Hannah Arendt uh, or possibly Soren Kierkegaard. Um, you know, I read both of them when I was really young. Uh, Hannah Arendt's kind of account of evil and the reason people do bad things really impacted me emotionally. And Soren Kierkegaard was somebody I just read so much when I was in my early 20s that it actually was hard for me sometimes to disconnect my way of thinking and feeling about things from what I read in his books, just because I kind of got lost in them so much. All right, let's go to Diego next. This is a complicated thing to respond to. I don't know. I think at the moment, my mind is at um, Spinoza, but like a radical delusion reading of Spinoza. Like I really like this um, notion of uh, monistic materialism. And uh, most influential, I think, will be Zizek. Probably Zizek took me, uh, really made me interested. You can just in a... end it on Zizek took you, and that would be more interesting than anything. Oh, yeah. He, he, he will prefer it as that as well. Yeah, I think like, <laughs> the fact that... Uh, I don't know. He he's, he was influential in, in his form, not as much in his writing because I think his books are rather repetitive after the eighth one. But um, <laughs> but his but his form his form is really something like the the fact that he can make a philosophy so interesting and so comical is just is just too cool. Yeah, I remember nice. I read um, uh, Sex and the Failed Absolute, and I was like, oh, this is more or less the same thing as you said. And <laughs> yeah, less than nothing, which is more or less the same as the Parallax you, which is more or less the same as. <laughs> Uh, you know, sublime logic. Yeah. Let's kind of innovate a little bit. I kind of almost see him as like a beatnik. You know how like Jack Kerouac wrote, you know, these continuous stories uh, on the road. It's just one giant book where he kind of adds new flavors to it. By the way, self, self, self uh, name dropping. My new book is about to come out next month. 
Oh, man, that was oh, nice. Awesome. All right. So, okay. Any chance of an English English translation? No, not. Uh, I don't plan to do an English translation. It was a complicated enough to write. Let's see. Let's see how it goes. If it goes well, I'll probably translate it. Nice. Congrats. Congrats. Link in the Thanks. description. For sure. For sure. I'm gonna do a one of those. All right. Since things. we we got we got to work our way up to the Chris answer to this. But so why don't we? Uh, Eric. Pen, penultimate will <clears throat> be Eric. I did also want to say, though, to congratulate Chris, uh, who also had a new piece that came out recently. And what was the magazine? Uh, Ipoche magazine. Yeah, on Schelling. So congratulations. on Schelling's Cosmogony. Yeah. Is it my turn to speak or? Oh, we're saving the best Uh, for last. I'll uh, I'll go through mine because mine will be quick. Um, I think in terms of like influential or formative influence on me, I think it's definitely like an even split between Walter Benjamin and Mm. Bruno Latour. I thought a lot about material culture. I, I got turned. I got turned by them again. I was taken. Wait, our love isn't reciprocal? That's so painful to me. Oh, no, no love is reciprocal, Matt. I know. I got Ask I Victor gotta, about Lacan. I got to yes. remember these running jokes now. Yes. Matthew McManus. For Matthew McManus is in love with the image of Eric and opening me up. I don't want to know what he does body. to your image in the dark <laughs> recesses of. Uh, his home, his private. I mean, home. I didn't even remember because it's that violent, so I couldn't even tell you. Yeah, I mean, you like you like Berserk, so I can imagine you're a sexual deviant. He opened me Thank up. Thank you. Mind, soul, and most importantly, body. Um, so it's an even split, you could say, <laughs> between Matt Walter Benjamin and Latour. I think favorite right now is probably Charles Sanders Purse. Mm. Hence, my, hence my. Uh, well, I'm focusing on him right now, and hence the last episode with with Rorty and me being a little more sympathetic towards pragmatism than I usually am. It's he's still got some work to do, but I I liked Rawls. But yeah, Charles Sanders purse, current favorite. Current I favorite. really liked the last episode actually. And yeah, I was a bit surprised that it wasn't more heated, uh, since I expected at least one person was gonna come with the hammer uh towards Rorty. But yeah. I gotta drill down into his nominalism because I think it's just another kind of idealism. We should have. Uh, we should have. Oh, I think he's very expressed about that. I mean, he says that Hegel was the most influential figure on his work, which a lot of people are surprised yeah. by. No, he is. He 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 takes it. He he reps it. Yeah, I don't like it, but I like no. him for taking the position. It's good. Yeah, that's me. That's me. Let's do uh, Chris. Well, um, I think well, everyone knows my my favorite philosopher is F. W. J. Schelling, and I want to just take this time to uh, respond to a question that Pills asked me. Um, in the oldest systematic program of German idealism, both Herderlin, Hegel, and Schelling um, have an absolute deconstruction of the state. And they say that the state itself is too mechanical and that it itself cannot be an idea. Mm. So the state needs to be, in a sense, demolished. And so I would say that is a politic that I that I back and that I think both Schelling and Holderlin and even Novalis um would back. So I've been reading a lot of Novalis and Schelling and F.H. Bradley. Um, I think Schelling and Novalis are probably my two favorite thinkers at the moment. And the reason why is because, you know, I adhere to a kind of Schellingian naturalism, where I think that um, one of our biggest problems is that we can't get past the subject object binary, that we tend to objectify um, both people, uh, races, identities, and nature. And so I think a lot of the problem with the climate crisis is how we view nature. And I think the Schellingian project is um, a great way of um, modernizing um, German idealism and the approach to reach back to German idealism and to rethink these concepts. Because 
um, you know, the encyclopedic project of Hegel and Novalis and even Schelling's late project, this kind of ontological existentialism, is a movement back to, you know, finding the alpha and the omega as freedom, not some kind of religious totality. But that's me. So wow. is, I can wait, offer a suggestion. Wait, uh, Chris, is your influential and favorite the same? Um, who no, you say I think, shaped your thinking the most? Um, well, I always say this. your the will, first, preferably. The, I'm going to have to agree with Pills. It was Kant. It was that moment when I heard mm. Sapere Ude, you know, dare to know, have the courage to use your own understanding. That phrase challenged me to the point where, like, I stayed after an hour after a lecture, and I just sat there going, what the hell does it mean to dare to know, have the mm. courage to think for yourself? I mean, for, you know, a 21, 22 to 24 year old thinking about, you know, having the courage to think for yourself. Um, that's a that's an idea that kind of shook me. We just call them, also, we just call yeah, them 20 year olds here. I also think like I I get a lot of heat for beating up on Deleuze, but I think, you know, Deleuze was a big part of my life for like six years. I think all of you know that. So I think I have to bring, I have to, I have to give some, although I don't disagree, I, although I don't agree with this project anymore, I do think he's still influential, but I would say definitely Schelling and Kant. Kant Actually, probably. I'm not sure if you remember this, but the moment where you and I started talking in a friendly way and not in an antagonistic way uh, was a night where I'd smoked a very, very big joint and I was watching, uh, I think it was a Superman cartoon and it was two o'clock in the morning and you started sending me, I'd also had a few drinks, uh, these messages about <laughs> Deleuze. Get the catalog out there. You were so angry and you were like, I don't understand it. Da, da, da. And I just started spewing language at you from Thousand Plateaus, which made more sense to me when I was baked and drunk than it did prior. <laughs> and you actually sent me a message back being like, wow, man, you know so much about Deleuze. I have to say, I'm somewhat impressed. And then you were like, do you want to come meet us afterwards? And that was- Do you, do you realize- you just summed up the problem with Delizians. That exact thing that they just, you know, just spew language. Exactly. There's, wax no, poetically. The, the actual reason that Chris stopped liking Deleuze was because he heard a talk of uh, Rosie Bray Dottie. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> oh, I can relate. I can relate. There. I it We're was, gonna be it was, really popular oh. on that subreddit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pastiche, it's, it's not, pastiche it of intersectionality so bad. No, but it wasn't her. It wasn't her. Her feminism or her, her critique, um, you know, with Donna Haraway. It was how she like labeled Deleuze as this like staunch materialist and and how he was rooted in in Spinoza. And she she didn't talk about the Bergsonian and the Marxist yeah. and the and the Hume aspect. It was just like beating Spinoza over the head. I mean, yeah, like I agree. Late nineteenth, oh, sorry, late twentieth century critical theory was basically beating Spinoza over the head as hard as it could go. Well, well, and I mean, I approve of this because it produced a lot of interesting stuff. But let's just be clear about what happened. Why don't we go around really fast saying our worst and, and most hated philosopher just for the fun of it? Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, can I start? Oh my god! Anne, yes, and Rand. I'll take I'll take on Rand for sure. Well, that's oh, such an easy that's, answer. That's Come using on, that's using philosopher that's... as a really loose. Yeah, that's not even a real philosopher. That doesn't <laughs> count. Jordan Peterson, I dibs that one. Yeah, I just wanted to shed an ob objectivism. I think is 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 necessary. Is 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 a it's a pity, but it's necessary. Wait, has okay. Pills even answered the first question yet? Because I feel like he hasn't. Yeah, uh, I said Nietzsche. Yeah, Kant. He started. Yeah. Nietzsche can't him. Kant most oh, okay. Kant most right, influential. Nietzsche would most prefer to read if I was like trapped in a room. So shed on one, guys. Go ahead. Yeah, I've got. I, it's hard for me. I got to think can, for a second. Can we just all? Can we just take one meta moment and just say 
the right and their appropriation of Strauss right now. If I hear Strauss's name one more time, I think I'll slip my wrist and watch the blood drip down my arm. Like, honestly, I'm so yeah. over hearing Strauss online. Somebody is going to be violating the natural law. <laughs> Strauss is yes. bad, but Strauss isn't as bad as people Whoa, think. Strauss yeah. is it's not, Straussians Strauss is not bad. that bad. I agree. It's Strauss. The takes are bad. Yeah, Strauss yeah, the, the takes are bad. Yeah. I, 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 so I can tell you the philosopher. I'd say Bertrand Russell. Oh, not because, uh, yeah. not because he was really bad at writing, just because he was the most smug asshole when it came to what philosophy is and what it does. Yeah. I, mm. I could say that there's a philosopher that I don't know that I just want to hate. Everything I hear about him makes me want to hate him, and that's Deleuze. <laughs> like, <laughs> every point. time I hear like Deleuzeans, like it just sounds like I don't know. There's there's a certain kind of move um, that I see in in this kind of philosophizing that like I see again unfairly. Uh, biased unfair of just kind of like this fetishization of like novelty and and change and just like and like and like creativity and just like all it's this bullshit fetish. that i just you're, i'm just like no. this is just this is this is this is stupid <laughs> no, i don't like, no, it. You I don't like anything i hear about it you are reading heart and negri on the yeah. list okay yeah, yeah so yeah, heart yeah, and negri yeah. that's my answer thank you very much so heart and negri are <laughs> uh, like are probably Deleuze, my least favorite the list was a genius what should have been shot Oh, yeah. that's that's a Zizek well, quote, isn't it? Yeah. That's not that's not true. I mean, I mean speaking it's... speaking of Deleuze and Zizek, Deleuze always said, "I can't write by myself. I need to be writing by reading or writing yeah. by reading someone else." Zizek is the same, except that person is himself. He just needs to read his own books and then rewrite them. Yeah, yeah. but we, but we cut him a break because it's his method of survival. Like he has admitted many times that finishing his books is just an excuse not to kill himself. So, <laughs> <laughs> can we can we also agree? I mean, I'm he's sorry. also got another model wife. He's got to get to. This is going to be really Dude, that's king Ooh. shit. King shit. This is going to be really controversial. But I'm going to say Hegel. Oh my god! I, wow! Can't I can't stand Hegel? You better walk or, around with a fucking bulletproof Chris, vest. Cause... Is it Hegel or the Hegelians? Exactly. I, and, yeah. and which okay. Hegelians? I, I'm Pippin, Pippin Hegelians, mm. you know, Terry Pinkard, mm. you know, followers of Pinkard. But I do like Holgate and I think H.S. Harris is great. Anyways, you better I'm also start wearing it. You better also start bringing an umbrella every time you go to a conference because like every Delusian is going to jerk off on you now. Like the minute you <laughs> arrive just because of what you, you said. I, I mean, think it's I'm fine. wondering. He already said I'm he's wondering, still an anti-state philosopher. We have that in common. I, I'm wondering: is there a distinction too between the philosopher that we like hate the most because, like, versus some? Because there's a lot of philosophers that I just like disagree with a lot about a lot that they say, but I really enjoy reading them. <laughs> yeah, right? and I really yeah. like. Like, I think Nietzsche for me is like a pretty good example of a philosopher that I that like in some ways I disagree with a lot of his conclusions, but I really enjoy reading him. Yeah, um, I think that's true, even if some more like conservative, I think that's kind of true of Strauss, too. Like, I, I like I don't like a lot of the stuff, but I think he's he can be Carl fun. Schmitt, it's like the, the philosopher you love to hate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I, Plato. I have a pretty simple answer. For Plato. Both. Plato is a very good writer. And then if you Plato just take, is so if, fun to read, if you take his argument separate from his actual writing, then it gets very annoying. Yeah, I we prefer did an episode the, on that. I prefer the Neoplatonists over Plato. Like I prefer pl reading Plotinus and Proclus. Heresy. Hmm. Oh wait, I didn't hear Matt's least favorite philosopher yet. And Eric's. Oh. Yeah. Oh, the answer is very simple. It's Alexander Dugan. I had to read a huge amount. <laughs> Dugan. Uh, for, oh my god. Yeah. I had to read a huge amount of his books and material for a review uh, that I'm is coming out of Commonwealth soon. And it was one of those rare occasions because I agree with Victor, like there are conservative and even far right authors who I detest their politics, but I will admit they're good writers like Schmidt is a beautiful writer, very clear, very memorable. 
Uh, and there are authors who I really tend to agree with, but I detest their writing style. But this is a good example, right? <laughs> like Dugan was like, yeah, Lacan. Dugan was reading somebody where I was like, this writing style is just a Shit. fucking war crime. And because the fact that it's endorsing war crimes makes it even worse. Like yeah, this yeah. should just be thrown into a toilet and burned with unrelenting mercy because at the end of like several weeks going through it, I seriously started wondering to myself if I had gone into the wrong career and if I just should have like stuck with landscaping and become a full blown alcoholic because there would have been some dignity to that as opposed to reading this goddamn book. I don't know who was the one that said it, but somebody said something similar about Ayn Rand. They said that um, Ayn, Rand back, Ayn, Ayn Rand books should not be taken, thrown away lightly. They should be thrown away with, this, with great like, with despise. Yeah, with great force now. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, I mean, Atlas Shrug is bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. Atlas Shrug and The Fountainhead are both bad books. And if you read any of her technical stuff, it also deserves a place oh, yeah. in the toilet seat of history. But like yeah, yeah, yeah. Dugan takes it to a whole new level because at least yeah. Diane Ryan can be clear. Uh, and she has a couple of memorable phrases. <clears throat> Dugan is like if you took a word salad of fascism and just pumped it into every mo- uh, pretentious person's head. It's awful. And well, I maybe it. There and is I, no Dugan. Maybe it's just an AI that crawls fascist literature. <laughs> and well, well, I, just, I felt just like go ahead. I felt ahead. that way about about Nick Land. <clears throat> we read a piece about from of Nick yeah. Land for the podcast, and like he was that was, you know, I kind of had similar yeah. feelings where I was like, the writing is so bad and stupid, and like the conclusions are also like, I mean, in that particular piece, it I wasn't thought it actually, was great. Like, the conclusions, the conclusions weren't that bad, Ugh. but it was it was an extremely pretentious piece of writing, and and yeah. and like considering what he went on to. Uh, argue for i'm i'm not i'm not, I'm not I, a I agree a with that it's a, a like name. it's Sorry. once you do the work and like we had to do all the work to make nick land interesting and then i came away being like oh that was some cool stuff but when you first sort of start reading it it's just like what the fuck is he talking about and then and then you start to try to draw connections but you have to do all of the work and that kind of shit well yeah. make, what makes it all the is like i can accept people being pretentious or egotistical in their writing like when nietzsche writes I am a destiny and wars will be fought in my name. I'm like, that's pretty highfalutin <laughs> stuff, man. But like, I, I write such good books. Yeah, but I'm like, you're Nietzsche. So you can so kind of get away yeah. with it. When I read somebody who's a fucking hack, who's unpleasant to read, and they're like, I am the shit, man. It's almost like dealing with that drunk guy at the bar who comes and sit next to you, is talking about what a big shit he is, even though nobody wants to be around him. And you're just like, would you not shut the fuck up and leave me alone? Yeah. Like, that's the way dealing with like the Ayn Rand's and the Dugans of the world is. Should, well, is. that sounds like what every woman's response to Nietzsche actually was. <laughs> IRL, <laughs> exactly. I, actually, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but there's a currently ongoing conversation, infinite conversation between Zizek and Herzog created by an AI machine learning program. Oh, Werner yeah. Herzog? Yeah, yeah. You can, you can go uh-huh. online and there's an infinite conversation between Zizek and Herzog. Just like being, how empty uh, is the universe? Actually, I'm into that. Yeah, it's is, so is awesome. It machine generated. Yeah, it's machine generated. It's absolutely hilarious. I was listening to it in the morning during the shower, and a couple of points make sense. And I was like, "Oh my god, what the fuck is language?" <laughs> <laughs> Library of Babel. Okay, this, yeah, this has to be the first time in history that someone listened to an AI conversation between two philosophers in the shower. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah, it was so interesting. I was like trying yeah. to make sense of, but but you know, like you 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 are fooled by it. You, you definitely believe they're having this conversation because the, the AI is, is is not too bad. It's not too bad. 
Well, what does yeah. Herzog say? It's like the universe is nothing, and Jesus is like, no, no, it's less than nothing. And Herzog no, is like, no, there's a nothingness that's lesser than even less than nothing. No, it's yeah. it's interesting. Like they're they're discussing. Uh, com- they ha- uh, there's a link. They're having conversations about uh, nature you should versus play a little culture. Bit. Yeah, you can, you can play a little bit on the on the. It's actually for free and it's open. Let's get. I love them in the Mandalorian. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's listen to them a little bit. There is this inner distance, a detachment. <laughs> You say to yourself, this is not me. It was some kind of specter. I have this horrible fantasy, not a nightmare, but almost a happy fantasy where I would like to know how a serial killer kills. <laughs> that would be a nightmare for me. But I think that I would never kill any man. I'm too cowardly, too much of a coward. And the moment when I look down, I'm already distancing myself from it. I think you're right. But I have a similar fantasy, which I've never spoken about. If someone would lock me in a room, and there were a revolver in there, and five naked women, who were completely shameless, if he would go and close the door, and I would know that he would come back in one hour, I don't know what would happen to me. I, what about that? Her job that was incredible. Replaced, that was incredible, that was yeah. Yeah, 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 those were similar topics. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was listening for like 15 minutes. It was amazing. It was really, really amazing. Oh my God. That's yeah. uh insight into Diego's that's shower. Hardest, hardest that. fap yeah. of my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Eric, worst philosopher. Did you answer this yet? Worst philosopher. Sorry, I'm just still picturing Diego cleaning the shower after that. <laughs> well, he's gotta he's gotta rebuild the the tile work after that. Remember when a listener yeah. told us that our, our humor was getting a bit too male and too like adolescent? Well, I feel like this episode's gonna be six, uh, six white males talking about philosophy. Come on, yeah, man. We're yeah. we're beyond criticism. Oh, six no. white males talking about philosophy is just philosophy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I yeah, say with an asterisk. Yeah. I uh, I you know, I'm wishy-washy on these points, right? But okay. My philosophers that I love to hate, let's say, starting with Descartes. Mm. Not a big fan of his conclusions, but he opens up the problems that are just that have just driven philosophy for so long. And I, I love him for that. Okay. Next <clears throat> next one, probably more more relevant to what I'm working on is Ferdinand de Saussure mm. and just all the philosophy of the 20th century that the signifier signified bullshit runs through. That gets me, right? I do not like the side of Lacan that takes up Saussure. I don't like that debate they all have about Frege and the zero point. Badia jumps in there at some point. I, I'm not a big fan of any of that. You wouldn't I even think, have access to the question if it weren't for, for Saussure, don't you think? Or is that there you go. The it, point it's the same answer, yeah. I, I love the fact that he opened up the conversation about signifiers being i'm not we've gone into that before i say that's that's my philosopher i love to hate would be probably somewhere between descartes on the metaphysical side and so sir on the uh at least what like people have picked him up on yeah structuralism and the the sociological applications of his work have been can we we all agree can we all agree on angles as well too marx was a great writer by himself but angles is Dialectics of Nature and yeah. his anti-shelling piece was terrible. Marxist, uh, such don't a great... be a Western Marxist. Engels is all right. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, we're moving on to a new question. I'm sorry to be the cop. You know, it's my least favorite job. But next question is about art from Nicolas. Hi, guys. I uh, wanted to say, first of all, that I was a conservative Petersonite only two and a half years ago. And Zizek, alongside the George Floyd protests, pulled me out of that, uh, which led me to your Zizek video, which led me to your podcast. So um, thanks for doing this and making it accessible to people like me who don't have a background in theory. Um, this isn't a theory question, but uh, I am a painter and I'm curious what everyone's favorite piece of art is. So happy 100th episode. Hey, Ooh, thank thanks. you very much. We changed uh, the Peterson bro's life. I feel that so feels good, man. fuzzy inside. That, yeah, that, that makes everything worth it. Yeah. Diego, you probably hear that all the time from the equivalent. Well, yeah, I, 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 without any intention, I position myself as a gateway drug out of um, Peterson Bros. And uh, is there a Mexican Peterson? Well, there's a bunch. It's, it's, it's a fucking pandemic, man. Worldwide, I think all this, this coaching ma- mentality and all these guys that um, uh, transform idealism into us into a sense of meritocracy. And they transform everyone into slaves of job. You know, you know this uh, theological metaphor of job. No, job was the one that had to endure all the tortures and <laughs> and have his faith uh, be the survival of everything. And then his faith was the proof of uh, of theology in itself. Um, I think everyone now is just like um, in the theology of meritocracy, in the sense that everybody has to believe, and if they don't, even if they don't really believe, they just feel that they have to suffer to the struggle in order to be deserving of that place so in that sense yes the world is full of jordan petersons like these bastards assholes that are selling cheap ideas under the notion of uh, you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and the sense of like positive freedom and all this stupidity well there are rooms that need cleaned everywhere right yeah well (laughs) he's 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 the one that should start cleaning his own room to begin with yeah dirty rooms are are something that transcends all times you know (laughs) Yeah, yeah going so. back to the Greeks, dirty rooms, the, the dragons, the dragons of chaos. His, yes. his daughter, yeah, yeah. dirty yeah. palaces. Anyway, so does art. anyone have a favorite uh, artist? I know Chris does, and I also know artwork. Yeah, uh, I can't do oh. a work. Does it have to be visual? Yeah, that was my same question because I was gonna say Moonlight Sonata, third movement. Beautiful na, piece. Na, 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 maybe we one. could, maybe we could specify. Does anyone have a favorite painting? I, I feel like. I do. I feel like Chris has something uh, on that. Yeah. Yeah. My my favorite, actually, I'm a huge fan of Scandinavian art. So like <laughs> mm. Ed, Ed, Edvard Munch, um, Eugene Janssen, um, Hammershoy is my favorite painter. And his, and his, uh, yeah. And his painting interior with four etchings, which is a beautiful piece. It's his wife facing um, in back of us. And there's a beautiful desk and a chair and some, Image. Oh my God! I can't even say it. Some pick some paintings on the on the wall there with some very cool kind of Scandinavian colors. So he's a beautiful artist, and he really knows how to paint the consciousness of light and lines and the way shadows reflect on specific objects. It's beautiful. Yeah, really. I have a I have a gorgeous picture of you in front of a hammer show when they came to Toronto. I think we were <laughs> think looking at that, that after the. Turner exhibit or something. Then we went across the street and got drunk. It was a good day. So just in case you don't have an artwork, I think uh, music, film, whatever it is, that'll apply. Works. But for me, it is a painting, at least a painting period. And mine is uh, Cubism mm-hmm. before Picasso made it all like field painting and flat. So the early Cubists, they tried to paint 
a, a room or a scene from like 25 angles at the same time. Uh, it's Picasso and Brock at the beginning. And then when they started doing other stuff, there's a group of artists in Paris called Section d'Or. And I think they that's my favorite bit because they would paint a room from multiple perspectives. And mm. before it turns into the Picasso that everybody knows and goes, you know, my kid could do that. But the backstory that I find really interesting here is they were being influenced by so many different things. They were influenced by photography was becoming popular. So you could take like 20 photos of a room, print them out and then paint the same room from 20 different angles. Uh, that was big. They were uh, looking at art from other cultures for the first time in the, like, the history of European art, at least saying are looking at African art, for example, and trying to incorporate that. And also uh, quantum physics. So this was right at the time quantum physics was becoming a thing. You've got the wave particle duality and all this messed up stuff at a subatomic level. And they were trying to reflect on this through art. And we eventually see Picasso get very lazy by the end of his career. But before he was lazy, when he was trying to deal with all this in an artistic sense, the early Cubists, uh, Cubism pre 1918 is what I'm going to say was my favorite. I like uh, AI generated art, <laughs> like uh, the, the Google uh, deep web stuff. No, I'll say I, uh, this actually is like a different, I haven't talked about this aspect of myself. I think I have a little bit, but I used to be really into Renaissance art. Mm. So uh, I super loved following the trajectory from late medieval art into the Renaissance and that whole confluence of of architects and mathematicians and artists in Florence and Italy, you know, like Brunelleschi teaching one point perspective to the artists, and then that becoming a defining feature of like kind of Renaissance realism. And then I looked around and I realized, oh my God, the Northern Renaissance is actually also really appealing like Hieronymus Bosch's paintings are just so fucking crazy and maybe that's not a, not the most exciting answer but that's where my head's at like I was so close to just just wanting to become like a renaissance art scholar art and architecture crazy but yeah I'd, I'd put my I'd throw my ball into like the the renaissance Italy I I want to like Southern Renaissance better, but I think the Northern Renaissance painters are also pretty key. The Dutch? Yeah, the Dutch Renaissance. I don't know. Something about those black and white floors is just so nice. It's like a checkerboard. It just it just gets me off, you know? I don't know. I don't know what it is. I love seeing little scientific instruments in the background. I'm like, fuck yeah. We're getting smarter. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just love it. No, as, as soon as Matt shows up again, then Eric can no longer repress his sexuality. Yeah, and that's a good like thing. A, something's happening. I, I guess I'm bringing out a virility in the show that the rest of you can't attain by yourself. I, something I, I love I, astrolabes. Um, Repress yeah, yourself. I'm pretty artistically like like uneducated and unknowledgeable. Um, but I suppose you know I I suppose if I had to pick something, maybe I I, I had like a brief interest in kind of like French impressionism um, as a consequence of taking philosophy of art classes and and also it's linked to Merleau-Ponty and I think often uh, impressionism is used uh, to sort of talk about like the way perception appears and like that French impressionism somehow captures 
something about our perception that, that the way that it actually functions, which is like that it doesn't actually pick up on like these fine grain details, the perfection, but it captures this like overall image that is like extremely familiar and like the way that light is perceived and all these different things. I think impressionism does a nice job of kind of like capturing that, which I really appreciate. But I have to also agree with uh, Eric, too, that I. I, I really find some Renaissance art exciting, just like in its in, in like the crowd I- images of the of like you know these perfectly like sculpted people and like uh, you know even thinking about uh, I have on my wall actually the uh, you know the School of Athens, which I think is I think that's Renaissance art, right? Ooh, that's like yeah. Italian Renaissance. It's, it's like Raphael. Raphael. Yeah, that's right. Merleau yeah. Ponty. Just in case anyone wants to look it up, he writes at length on Cezanne. Yes. And Cezanne yes. piece of light. And it's mm. almost like fuzzy light. You'd kind of describe exactly. it as, yeah. I think yeah, there's exactly. something so. about there's something about the effect of religion and and religiosity that gets into their artwork. Like I'm not very religious, but just seeing the inspiration that that creates and the painting and the architecture and the altars and the frescoes, like it just gets me. I don't know what it is. Like I'm not yeah. religious. I don't I don't care. But just something about that that inspiration and that fundamental well, for, yearning for something just it just gets me and no uh, i agree but represented the, but the artistically thing, and it's amazing the thing for me though is more what i find it like fun about some of those things like the school of athens is a good example but i think there's lots of compositions like this where there's just so much action going on and like you if you look at the, the painting or you look at the fresco more you just see like all the characters doing all these different things and like that makes it just like a fun experience to look at and be like like i'm looking at the school of athens right and there's like some guy in the corner and he's like scribbling in a notebook and like <laughs> And there's like some weird interactions. There's some weird interactions happening between people like in the corners of the, of the composition. And it's just like, that makes it like a really interesting like thing to, to look at. Sorry. I was just going to say the the great thing about that painting, the school of Athens is Hypatia. Hypatia is in it actually. Yeah. Yeah. My brother, Sorry. my brother had his, has his in, in the back of his office as well. You know, the, your description, Victor, remind me of a book by Freud uh, telling the story of Leonardo da Vinci. I don't know if you guys have uh, have read it. Oh, I've heard of no, it. I haven't I read haven't it. Read it. Yeah, it but he super, psychoanalyzes da Vinci, right? Exactly. Super interesting. He goes into the letters that da Vinci left and makes a psychoanalytical uh, reading of, of the post-mortem, <laughs> post-mortem da Vinci. His relation to fresco versus oil paintings is super, super interesting. Highly recommended. I don't remember the name of the book. I'm going to I'm gonna try to find it. I'll link it to you guys later. I'm just going to be a cool. smug asshole for the sake of it and saying that liking Raphael is like liking... Avengers Endgame. <laughs> yeah, There's so those... much action. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I agree. I agree. Look, um, that's so I don't like the man, They're mannerists. Late Renaissance. You are a fucking snob, though. But that's, okay, but like, I will say, you know, it's uh, yeah, of course. I don't like. I don't happen to like superhero movies, but there are definitely equivalent things that uh, <laughs> that I do enjoy that are what? similarly lowbrow. But yeah, fuck you. Uh, it's what yeah, was the name? It's fun to watch. It's fun to look at. What was the name of this musician that Adorno really loved when, when in the in the book that he sheds on jazz? Oh, he, he talks about tone. Sh- Shredder. Sh- sh- it's a Shredder. Shredder is the evil guy from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Schoenberg. Uh, Schoenberg. Exactly. Schoenberg. Oh my God. That's that's for me. That if if you say Schoenberg, you are a bourgeoisie. There's there's no escaping <laughs> it. Yeah. Like I'm I'm gonna take you to the guillotine holding hands. But the dissonance and the totality, man, come on. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know about don't know. the 12-tone music. I, can't, I, think, I, I don't know I if think I can Boulez take is pretty. Boulez is pretty bourgeois. Like having a helicopter <laughs> land in the middle of your orchestra just so you can get the sound. 
record get that recorded sound uh yeah. drinking drinking tears from african kids yeah <laughs> <laughs> right, i agree we, i, I we like Raphael heard... though i think the mannerist stuff is is really really good yeah well, i think we have not yet heard from uh, matthew and what, uh, are the, what, what are the chances Caravaggio. this is an 80s movie or an 80s uh, american rock anthem no, oh, yeah, I mean, they all go that. together. I mean, the movie is Purple Rain. The soundtrack mm -hmm. is Purple Rain. And the mm -hmm. artist, of course, is Prince or sometimes the artist formerly known as Prince. Uh, no, no. Uh, said Akira. <laughs> yeah, that would have worked, too. No, no. Uh, my favorite painting is uh, The Body of the Dead Christ in the Tomb, mm -hmm. uh, which is a painting from the Renaissance period. Um, and it's widely considered to be the first materialist interpretation of religion and art. And it produced actually a lot of interesting commentary from people like Dostoevsky and Kristeva. Um, and also uh, Zizek later on, right, with this idea of the profanation of the sacred. Uh, and I also just think it's a very moving uh, image of its own accord about the human condition. In terms of like my favorite novels, um, it's probably a, a well, We haven't been doing that. You don't need to answer that. Novels. Oh, no, okay, I'll, I'll well, hear. Um, no, but he okay, wants you to hear. Okay, so yeah, I just, I didn't, I'm, I'm it's just it. like no one else said that. So I just Victor, I was like, oh, Matt's Victor. taking, Matt's taking extra. He's answering extra questions. Teacher, like, it's not fair. No, but but <laughs> Victor, you like Lacan. Why would you interrupt him? He wants to say something. <laughs> it's going to be an intervention there. On, on yeah. his, it's going to make him think. Yeah, there was going to be an intervention that would happen. It should happen a long time ago. But um, <laughs> I guess, you know, I figured a piece of art. So it'd either be Samuel Beckett's How It Is um, or possibly like um, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. I also thought that was a beautiful book. So those Ooh. would be my two uh, authors. Nice. Uh, I think we had to um, read that book. I remember I took a philosophy class on meaning of life. And that was like a book that we read because it's like pretty nihilist. Isn't it nihilistic, isn't it? Or am I maybe I'm mistaking it for something else? Well, it has a sequence in it where a child's mother uh, thinks about killing him because the world is so bad. Right. Uh, the father convinces her not to. And so her decision is to kill herself. Uh, in order to spare him having to watch her die of depression. And then the kid and the father walk on through the wasteland. And that's the mm. opening of the book. So yeah. this, <laughs> okay. this, this sounds like Patrick Susskind's perfume. Have you read that? That's a yep. morbid book. Oh, I, I've heard it's supposed to be good. Yeah, I've heard that's supposed to be really fucked and twisted. It's amazing, twisted. yeah. Nobody but, uh, say Lord of the Rings, because that's mine. Beckett's How It Is is also <laughs> so, a book so that Marillion. I really yeah. liked. Mysterious. Yeah. All right, I'm going to package the next two questions together because one's not really a question. It's more of a, a statement about how great we awesome. are. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Always good to hear. But we're kind of shifting. Most of the other questions are about propaganda and work. So keep mm. that in mind. The first one is from uh, Mapita. Hi. So I was kind of lost in the sense that much things around were turning space let's say, into a not very friendly environment for me to have it. And really, thanks to this project, I was able to provide a mental space that I was lacking of, where I can figure out on how to get out from the places of insane control over me. So I think that's, that's nice. um, it's kind of like a thank you. So I, I hope it could be a criticism that I misinterpreted, but Why? Say, yeah, there's a space. I... We, we make a space where you can think outside of you know the norms delightful mm -hmm. uh and the second one is related just a word of encouragement from switzerland because even if it doesn't seem possible to cut the giant's head it might still be possible to infect it and that strand of imaginary symbolic bug might yet accidentally emerge from your circling your political intellectual frustrations 
And in the meanwhile, some of us are definitely enjoying it. So keep it up. Uh, love you guys. Yeah. That's nice. Like that. That's a little bit of a David and Goliath medical metaphor there. I liked it. Yeah. I like that. I didn't too. know that the Swiss could be that uh, ominous sounding. The only I was in the Swiss I was in the I was in the Geneva airport for a bit and and I oh, the only thing I know about Switzerland is my god it was like a bottle of sparkling water for 6 Swiss francs and I was like outraged by the price. Hey fly, flying over flying over the Alps was one of the greatest moments and seeing those mountains up yeah. high was just beautiful. No snowboarding in the Alps is pretty fucking kick ass too. I went to Switzerland and it's a beautiful country uh, with fairly stiff, but otherwise friendly people. Although I will admit I went down a street in Bern and there are only like 10 banks uh, on either side of me. And I was kind of disappointed because I was like, shouldn't this whole thing just be fucking banks up the yin yang? Not enough banks in Switzerland. That's uh, feedback coming from uh, Matthew McManus. (laughs) Please. They're all digital now. (laughs) Increase your banks, please. Anyway, what I wanted to what I wanted to reflect on those questions, because we all do this to varying degrees. Diego's got his channel. Matt has a real job. And uh, Chris does a bunch of these Twitter spaces. But it's kind of, what is it What is it for when we're whining about not actually being able to change the world, but still studying philosophy and that mm. sort of making a space that's relatively entertaining while still dealing with philosophy in a way that is not the philosophy of the world, which tends to be very low pragmatic self-help here's how to improve yourself type philosophy rather than just being like, it's the world's fault that it's fucked up. I didn't do this. Well, Zizek likes to point to an old Holocaust joke that's appropriate for my own experience. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go there. Whereas there are these two Jews and they're sitting there in the middle of the Holocaust and they're reading Nazi newspapers. And one of them looks at the other and he's like, why are you doing that? And he's like, well, because when I read this, we're in control of all the banks, all the major corporations, and we rule the world. And mm-hmm. then go to the real world. And what are that we sucks. doing? We're about to be dragged to the gas chambers, right? Uh, and so there's something similar applies where I go to my day job and nothing much happens. Uh, you know, I teach people. Uh, but if I read right wing media, uh, apparently I'm transforming generations of students into postmodern neo Marxists. So that's also one of the reasons I enjoy reading conservative literature. That's uh, that's funny. I thought you were good. That, that Holocaust joke starts just like Zizek's other Holocaust joke. I guess he has a bunch, right? The yeah. one where uh, Holocaust does, jokes, plural, right? Yeah. The one where the the one where the two Jews are laughing, uh, they're in heaven, and you know he says, uh, and uh, yeah, you wouldn't he's get like, it. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then God's like, "What are you guys laughing at?" He's like, "Oh, we're laughing about like that time he fell over right before he got dragged into the gas chamber." And he's like, "Guys, he's like, that's just not that funny." And then he's like, "Well, you had to be there <laughs> I guess you get to to get it." Can I can I take a shot at the answer, please? Um. <clears throat> I was just rereading uh, Society of Spectacle by Guy Debord. And um, I like his notion of um, even if we are trapped in the spectacle and understanding the spectacle, not as the accumulation of images, but the fact that our social relationships are mediated through images. And um, the job that we do in a way is to remind people that there is something real beyond the spectacle. And um, and listening to these two guys that send messages, is, is something I, I've received many, many similar messages where people say, yeah, man, like, thank to you, I got to question uh, what was behind the news, behind the narrative, like, just, and, and not not even in a, in a conspiracy theory sense that, oh, my God, like, beyond propaganda, there's a real world. But, you know, like, in, in a very simple sense, like, reminding myself of, I need to focus more on my family and, and take care of my body and be aware. 
aware of my health and go outside and work out and eat healthy and take care of my uh, my appearances you know like remind yourself that there's a reality beyond the spectacle because i do feel there's a there's a great price to be paid especially by the younger generations uh being born into the society of spectacle my wife is a is a practicing uh, lacanian psychoanalyst and after the pandemic the number of patients she has has multiplied like by crazy amounts uh, she has been uh, like doing at home interventions because of uh, suicide attempts and she has like had to leave the house at 11 p.m. to save people that just swallow a bottle of pills and i i feel like the, the mental pain that uh, late capitalism is is producing is is a real problem and we're just seeing the 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 pains and the 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 grievances and the the deep wounds that this is just starting to show up and i think the work we do even if you know philosophy has this certain therapeutical aspect of, of it as as maurice merleau-ponty will say like uh fire on your own body uh, you reconnect with the real world you see that there's something beyond the spectacle and in that sense like listening to these two audios i think you guys should also applaud yourselves because it's, it's part of your work is is part of the, what you produce on these people that you remind them that there's a reality beyond propaganda noise bullshit jokes and and paranoia chris was bringing up neoplatonism earlier because what you just said sounds really uh really gnostic neoplatonism gnostic we're trapped in the world and our world of happens ideas. to be made of images but there's a sophia outside of the world chris I should mention, I don't know if our, our viewers are aware, he's an active Twitter user and does spaces where he hosts philosophy discussions. So I wanted to know, Chris, have you gotten feedback like this and what makes you do it? Well, um, <laughs> partly because my uh, my friends run like probably one of the best podcasts, so I couldn't I couldn't even compete with that. No, I'm just joking. Um, I can't I take wanted... this. This is too many good <laughs> words. That I, I need to go I to actually... Twitter and find out the shit that people are saying about me. <laughs> I... I actually really wanted um, to hear, I wanted discussion. That's what I wanted. But I wanted discussion where we could lo like level the playing field so we could bring in, you know, we would bring in specific academics to talk about a text or talk about ideas. And then, you know, for 30 minutes, we engage with the person and then 30 minutes, we talk to the actual people. And I thought that this, this was kind of a healthy um, way of, talking to, you know, diverse people from all over the world. And most of the people that we, we talked to were all from Europe. We had people from South America, lot, all over Australia as well, too. So it was good to hear, you know, that we were affecting change, specific change on Twitter, because I'll tell you, Twitter spaces are actually kind of sad. They're either NFTs or they're right-wing people, you know, yelling about Biden for the next, like, 10 years. So we were getting a lot of messages like, thank you so much. This is fantastic that we can tune in and learn about, you know, Edith Stein, who not a lot of people read or Whitehead that, you know, people want to read and, you know, get into process of reality and they don't have the means or sometimes they don't, they're not at they're They don't have access to university lifestyles. So they can listen to a podcast and then join a conversation and bring up a question or an idea in the discussion. So that's why we, that's why we did it. That's why I started to do it. And I still think it's a good it's a good outlet and medium. 
I mean, you're so lucky you get this kind of feedback, like probably because of what I do. 90% of the emails I get are things to the equivalents of like Ben Shapiro is going to shove his balls in your mouth and you're going to fucking check <laughs> on them, you piece of shit. Like that's like my 90% of like my daily correspondence. And I'm just like, thank you very much, Dr. Matthew McManus. Right? Do you oh, not remember? Wait, do you, you not teach remember? at a university, Matt. You mean your students email you and say Ben, ben Shapiro is going to shove actually his a balls lot, in your they're mouth? They're actually a lot ruder, I should say. Oh, no, he's still remember? writing all those anti-conservative pieces online though it's true yeah i mean uh yeah i have a new one that's coming out about millerman and then i'm writing my big book on conservatism I, I Joy, did Joy have, Sands, I did, matthew Joy Sands. exactly I did, yeah. I did get into a fight with millerman and somebody else and johannes niederhausen or niederhausen or yeah, what i call them Nieder. i heard about that and it was because he was trying to um have undergraduate students who didn't read a lot of text to drop out so they could join so they could uh pay for $1,200 to take his courses. And I told, I called him a sophist on, you know, on Twitter and he just like lost his mind and was just like messaging me nonstop and saying, look how much you published. You haven't published a book. So you're not an academic. Okay, dude. Yeah. Well, he's right about one thing. Undergraduates do not read. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's true. They do at the yeah. University of Michigan. They do. Yeah. I Except for math students, students, of course. Mm. Matthew, no. have you have you have you been in any public like big debates? Uh yeah, probably the biggest one last year was I had a debate with the head of the UK Ayn Rand Institute. And mm. we had a deliberation on whether or not objectivism or democratic socialism should be the way of the future. Oh I my admit, god. Though, yeah, I mean, I, I went in, uh, I was in a good mood that day, and it was also the middle of the summer, and I was going on a camping trip. So it was more of a kind of friendly spat than uh a big debate. Let's put it that way. Oh my fun. god, I'm I'm pretty much like banned from debates in Latin America for now. Like no, nobody will take me. Nobody will. Answer Dude, that my was mails. such a fire debate. Yeah, I remember I watched. Yeah, Matt, you got to see uh, Diego's debate. Uh, it was really it was fascinating. In well, Spanish, Diego. Now you can take over the anglophone world. Or it's like a great. It's like this. 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 Like weird. I guess like motivational. Like pyramid scheme type. Like motivational bro in like Mexico and and like oh, Diego one just of them. Diego oh, is yeah. just like here is why like all the shit you're saying is vacuous. And it was like, I mean, yeah. I don't normally endorse committing war crimes against people, but those people deserve it. You know, and I've been offered like pretty big um uh, like names like the the presidential candidate for Argentina, Javier Milei. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He's part of the Atlas Foundation as well. Like he's into the yeah. Cato Institute and. This, all these like bullshit oh, libertarian yeah. think tanks and oh, i was offered the cia fronts yeah yeah the cia the heartland the, the coke brothers uh coke brothers brothers well the coke brothers slaves to be honest because let's be honest they don't have brothers they they only deal with other capitalists but but it's weird like this <laughs> like this debate uh world is is interesting to me it's kind of fascinating that um in the end i don't know if you there's a german politol uh uh PhD in politics um, that wrote a theory about the spiral of silence. I don't know if you guys have, have heard about this. Is how oh. how minorities drive uh, the main narratives in social media, and how in the end, uh, out of pure peer pressure, people tend to be either silent about their point of view or agreed with the vocal minorities. That would never happen in an online space. <laughs> no no yeah. I, that, that's very interesting though i mean congratulations uh shad that 
you're not uh, able to do that anymore. But uh, it sounds like a useful thing, pushing down some of those new age capitalist types. If anything, that's one of the great crusades of our time. Yeah. Wait. So what were we talking about again here? Was there something about like the value of philosophy and how do we deal with kind of like doing philosophy when we feel like we're we have no kind of like ability to make change? Is that right? Yeah. Am I? I think it was. I, I did have thoughts about that, but I think we were no, responding wanna, to wanna, the comments. The comments were mostly like something that I think we did forget a lot, which is like people listen to us for a mm. reason. It doesn't mean we're always right. doesn't mean we're always funny. But, you know, in the end, it's a net good in the world, even if we don't see, yeah. even if, you know, Biden gets elected again. It doesn't like that's not the thing that we're doing. Yeah, we started this as like a creative outlet, but in the end, it's also about creating a space for critique and a little bit of distance from what's going on because we're so immersed in the world and the spectacle and the. Well, I was just gonna say that I think philosophy is intrinsically enjoyable and worth doing, regardless of the change. And I'm sure I feel like on this maybe. Chris uh, will 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 agree with me the most, uh, being the one who's maybe least interested in political questions in his philosophy, because I think there's just a beauty and a kind of satisfaction and a way of understanding the world and yourself that I think, you know, uh, mm. is is is, I think, intrinsically uh, and ex experientially valuable. Well, if you I think Chris you. isn't interested in political questions. All you have to do is just bring up the Turks. Yeah, sure. Know thyself. Well, to be okay, to be fair, Armenia is in a huge crisis right now with Azerbaijan, and you know, we have no backing from anybody, and hmm. Azerbaijan is backed by Turkey. Um, we've lied about our population for the last ten years because of invasion, and Artsakh, which was um, given away to Azerbaijan you know, by Stalin. So it's a really, and now they've actually creeped up into, creeped up to the border of Armenia. So mm. by the way, I'm not anti-Turk. I'm anti um, Erdogan's government yep. and, and his, and his denial of the Armenian genocide and his, and obviously his occupation of Northern Cyprus. And of course, uh, you know, the kind of brutality and the, the money that, that Erdogan sends to Ilyev, who, who is a dictator, who is, openly stated he wants to wipe Armenians off the face of the map. I just wanted to say that just, you know, it's good. My personal view is that most philosophers I encounter tend to fall into one of two paradigms. Uh, there are more intellectually inclined philosophers who tend to be interested in theory because they enjoy conceptual puzzles uh, and they find a kind of pathological joy uh, in resolving what seems like an intrinsically difficult puzzle. Uh, and most of the people who go into analytic philosophy, I think, are predisposed this way. The other people I notice who tend to become philosophers usually see it as something that's a little bit closer to a platonic calling, let's call it that, or they associate some kind of religious significance to the quest for a capital T truth or capital I insight, whatever it is that you want to connote it. Uh, and they tend to usually ascribe more romantic uh, or even religious tendencies to this. Um, I'm kind of reminded of what Freud said, where he pointed out that a lot of people have this kind of oceanic feeling uh, when they confront reality. Uh, mm. And in terms of which paradigm I fall into, it would probably be the second one rather than the first one, which isn't to say I don't have a lot of respect for people who do appreciate a good conceptual puzzle. And I do also. Right. But I think that also links to my own political convictions, since I never was interested in political theory just for the sake of trying to theorize on what a just society would look like for its own sake as an abstract yeah. matter. It really was uh, a matter of trying to achieve a certain level of justice for the world uh, as a 
act of grace, if you want to call it that. So yeah. that's my kind of approach to things. I, I relate a lot to what you said, Matt, in the sense that um, I, I mean, I, I didn't get into philosophy by by you know by pleasure or by indulgence at all i mean it was very pragmatic like uh, it was because of my son's disease i, I yeah. felt a deep discomfort with the way society works and the way society is organized and i felt he didn't have a place in the world and i started looking for a place and looking for uh, you know people that will help me uh, understand what i was going through and the fact that he couldn't speak made me louder about my my ideas and and got me to reading about uh, injustice and you know I, I eventually got into Marx but also into different readings about capacism you know this notion of uh, judging people by their capacity to produce and the conundrum mm -hmm. that this creates you know like the 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 outcasts the others the ones that don't fit the subaltern um, the ones that are left over and my, my approach to to philosophy was never this like this notion of being a friend to truth. I, I much rather be a sophist and uh, be yeah. pragmatical about what I want to change in the world than than just being in love with uh, knowledge as a good in itself. You know, like and and even and even relating to this um, critique of 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 the of the of the Platonic use of sophism, in the sense that you know that artists were banned from the Republic, in the sense because artists they were the pure simulacrum. Uh, they were not like the philosophies are the philosophers are the one that are truly in love with with uh, with knowledge and truth. The sophists are the fake ones, but the artists they were like in a category of themselves. And and in that sense, I think um, we should we should also reflect back on the pragmatical use of uh, thinking and the pragmatical use of criticism beyond. Uh, as an end in itself, even even if I understand, even if I if I admire and 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 I, I even aspire in some way to the way people treat knowledge as a as a standalone goal, I think uh, in the way it, it does have to impact our reality and the well being. Because as I, I'm always reminded of this sentence, I think is one from Walter Benjamin that the revolution is always late for someone. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give an example. Um... Pills will probably relate to this because he's not a huge fan of analytical philosophy. But I took a class in the philosophy of language with a guy called Henry Jackman, uh, mm. who's a great teacher, by the way. So this doesn't reflect on him. But one of the papers we read uh, concerned the problem of reference, reference and um, representation. And mm. the philosophical puzzle was, say there was a guy driving along in a car uh, and he points in a field and says, that's a black cow right there. Uh, what would happen if it turned out that there was just a cutout of a black cow? Is he making it on Aaron a statement? Especially, and there's a further wrinkle to this is, which is what if behind the image of the black cow there is, there a, real... is a black cow? Huh. And the idea is, well, he made a statement that is factually true, but in terms of the exact thing that he was pointing to, he wasn't actually referring to the right object. And I just remember sitting there thinking to myself, like, this is a very interesting conceptual puzzle, but I just don't give a fucking shit at all. Right. <laughs> and nobody wanna go. <laughs> I just when, when, you say, now, when you I say I hate analytic philosophy, the philosophy of language, I'm a little bit all right with some of it. But this was the exact paper that I read, except <laughs> yeah. the, the example was if you walk by a classroom and you see a hologram of a teacher teaching and you erroneously form a justified true belief that there is a teacher teaching in there, yet he is actually at the back of the room where you cannot see, but you form a belief based on the hologram that you're looking at. Do yeah. you have a justified true belief that there is a teacher in the classroom? Yeah. So <laughs> stupid. I, exactly, I actually right? uh, sure. And I, I, mean, I personally, I, believe, I personally am of the belief that 
having the right cognition of states of affairs is a truer epistemology uh, than the alternatives. But that's neither here nor there. I mean, the kind of point I was getting at with this story, which I'm glad Pills relates to, is just that that kind of philosophy just never appealed to me. But don't you think that there that there should be an equal balance between the theoretical and the practical? That it shouldn't just be Hmm. Oh, a bound like a grounded by the practical. There should be some. Like I agree with what Victor <clears> said. <throat> Victor said something. You know, there there is this. You know, when when Aristotle says that philosophy begins in wonder. You know, that wonder in the theoretical can lead us to practical questions about the world. Right? There is this kind of interior and exterior element um, of our experience. We could talk about the bodily. We could talk about the practical. But we there's also the kind of the, the void, beauty. the lack. Yes, right. Yeah, I that's, think we that's didn't so go real. into it in our last episode as much, but but like Rorty and Donald Davidson are incredibly close. Like Donald Davidson and Rorty, yeah. there's a the, the conversation they have on YouTube, for instance, like that we we just don't need a theory of meaning anymore because mm. a theory of meaning implies a theory of truth, and what we're moving towards is is pragmatic action, and I think it's moving more towards the balance that Chris was talking about. Like analytic philosophy is coming to terms with its own history of of you know russell and logicism and and, and the linguistic turn and now it, it's coming back around and and i'm sympathetic to it insofar as it's actually like grasping its own journey from frega now to actually thinking about questions that have a wider application than just conceptual puzzles like matt was talking about right yeah, I'll give an example, Chris, that kind of gets at what I'm talking about within theory, because I agree with you. It's not like we should just believe in anything because uh, it happens to conform to our preconceptions, right? That'd be sophism. Take a singular person like Wittgenstein, right? The early Wittgenstein with the Tractatus Logical Philosophicus created this extraordinary intellectual apparatus uh, that is kind of icily true uh, in this really quite gorgeous, uh, almost sublime way. Uh, and you can associate it with all kinds of platonic connotations. Uh, but even he was aware of the fact that as true or as benign, or sorry, as um, sublime as this might be, it said very little to a lot of his more important and pressing questions, like how it was he was supposed to live his life, what was beautiful, what it meant to be good. And this is one of the reasons I've always admired his second phase more than his first one, precisely because he retreats from this kind of icy platonic heaven down into the streets to try to listen to what people are saying mm -hmm. and the kind of words that they use to bring meaning to their life. That's the kind of philosophy that's always intrigued me more uh, than the kind of thing you'd find in the Tractatus. This is, this, that's a really good point because what does Wittgen, who does Wittgenstein end with but Kant, right? An uncertainty. Hmm. So I don't know. I only care that the question of why philosophy is answered. If your answer is just I like puzzles, I don't care. That's fine. If your answer yeah. is just I want a job and I want to make money talking to undergraduates, fine. Good for you. I don't care. As long as you have an answer. And anyway, I'm hmm. gonna move on. We can keep uh we can refer back to this if you want, but I got two more together, two comments. They are about uh, propaganda and nostalgia. Recent theme has been propaganda, uh, myth, and uh, the effectiveness of, say, uh, QAnon, conspiracy theories, and lamenting that the left doesn't have something similar. My question is, how would the left create something similar and equally effective when it seems like the requirement for that effectiveness is through propaganda causing you know, the doubt, the confusion, etc.? Where the leftist aim is always to, as clearly as possible, describe capital, capitalism, 
and to authentically want to relieve the suffering of people rather than to just further confuse them so that they can be manipulated. It just doesn't seem like uh, there's the same means and the same ends that are sought. Um, so I'm wondering if, if that comparison of uh, another uh, QAnon or something comparable to QAnon is even a comparison could be made or if we're looking at something just entirely different and what is that entirely different mobilizing myth, conspiracy theory, whatever you want to call it. That was from our friend Age of Bumfires. <laughs> Thank you very much. And here's like the other one. It's a little shorter. Something I wanted to talk about is the use of nostalgia as a tool for propaganda, given your recent episode on Bernays. Essentially, media as a means for removing people's ability to conceptualize novel futures. I know Fisher talked about the cancellation of the future, but I just feel like things have gotten worse and evolved, likely with worsening material conditions since he wrote and gave that lecture. Do you have any thoughts on this? Thanks. Congratulations on 100. That was from Burke, who has a very nice voice. He should be podcasting with that. Yeah, good mic. That bass good mic. Um, or at like least it. doing ASMR. Yeah, at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we got propaganda as the first question. How does leftist propaganda, if we want to call it that, should it compete? Is it uh, doing the same thing as propaganda or not? And then the second question is if we don't have a future, then why? And is our future becoming more and more opaque? Uh, given, I guess, our media environment and that QAnon is thrown in there. So I just wanted to know your guys' thoughts on that. My, my take on these two comments is, is is very one very close to each other. Is the left trying to, to, to battle capitalism with an idealistic approach? You know, it's like, oh my God, really? Like, the, there's nothing worse than an idealistic left. You have to be materialistic. Like this is this is why it's so hard for me to understand people trying to reinvent their left from idealism. It's like guys, like you're gonna fall right into the trap of capitalism once again. Like it makes no sense. Of course, we have it much harder because we're trying to win a battle against a three hundred billion dollar propaganda industry with memes and books that nobody reads. It's like of course it's impossible. In the sense that that's that's why that's that's why I've fallen back into this notion that um, it's a radical reading of Spinoza. Uh, the world is material; everything else is just symptomatic, um, emerging out of this material condition. So, trying to change it from idealism makes no sense. We, what we have to change is material conditions and material relations, not idealistic uh, narratives of what is happening and inspiring people. What, what is what are they criticizing? A lack of left theology. It makes no sense. Of well, what if, about what about the idea that you do have to like if you want to build a movement, there needs to be a, a set of narratives at the base of that movement, right? And those are going to convey ideas. Are going to understand the word world through concepts. Yeah. And you have the take like if you're a materialist take of of like our our ideas are really just getting back to a material kind of under undertow that mm -hmm. we're all being tugged along by. But what about like how do you construct even just like say a rhetorical foundation for a movement, let's say. Yeah, I was just going to say for me, you know, I I agree with what you're saying, Diego, um, but there is a sense that uh, a strong kind of materialism, which then would lead to a kind of telos and reductive materialism, would not be a good thing. Like mm. there's there is a reason why you know, you know, the industrial revolution and a a, a more more kind of um, humanist materialism led to some of the problems that we have with climate change. Not that I'm saying that we shouldn't 
be focusing on the material element, uh, especially when it comes to political action. But I do agree with what Eric was saying, um, that we do need some kind of concept, some conceptual schema. That people can oh, rally so we, behind. Right. So and that we can um, like look at look at Badiou, for example. He's a great example of the subjectivization or the, the fidelity to an event or some kind of concept that allows the people to band together within the material. So maybe like an idealist realist or an ideal material. Um, but I understand your your skepticisms with idealism. Yeah. I will much people rather mobilizing do- because of Badiou. Sorry. <laughs> No, no, go ahead. I, I would much rather do an inversion of the uh, mechanical Turk from playing chess from Benjamin <laughs> and just say that it's the other way around. I think um, even if like the, the mechanical Turk is uh, the sense of leftist theology or whatever meta narrative we're going to create to make people rally behind it, but beyond behind the table or, or like below the table is dialectical materialism. Yeah, I'd say that. From an intellectual standpoint, I agree with you, Diego. Uh, and I think that it's extremely problematic if we try to ape conspiracy theorizing, because I think conspiracy yeah. theorizing is inevitably idealist uh, yeah. in the sense that it's a totalizing narrative and it's almost always personalized as well. Uh, rather than a structural critique, you have one set of people uh, that's almost always responsible for all the problems that govern us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which also lets us off the hook because we don't have to deal with the fact that many of the institutions from which we are alienated are governing us, but they're not controlled necessarily by anyone uh, they're they're kind of operative exactly independent of us the one problem i have with this is that intellectually i think that's all fine uh it's just that the reality is that from my perspective by far the most powerful uh left mobilizing leftist mythology uh was ultimately an unconvincing one but there's no denying its success uh which, which one the more eschatological approaches uh, to Marxism that you saw in the early 20th century, right? This mm-hmm. idea that vulgar Marxist kind of idea that everything is about class struggle, the victory of the working class is inevitable, uh, and once capitalism yeah, falls messianic. because of its inherent, yeah, exactly, yeah. because of its inherent contradictions, we're going to be triumphant. Uh, I mean, this was so successful that you even had conservative commentators like Joseph Strupinder think that Marx is exactly right. Capitalism is going to end. We're completely doomed and it's going to be a horrible thing. Right. Uh, (laughs) Now, I don't want to return to that intellectually, but there's no denying it's kind of power as a mobilizing force, because if you think that victory is assured, then you're far more likely to sign up uh, for Marxist parties. So what I do think we need to do now is work on constructing more meaningful kinds of leftist narratives that aren't necessarily theological in the idealist sense, uh, but capture some of the sacral quality of theology for materialist purposes. And I think there are two authors that are doing a fantastic job of that right now. Uh, One is Zizek, right, Uh, with this kind of materialist reinterpretation of Christianity uh, Mm -hmm. as an emancipatory and egalitarian name. I agree. The other person is uh, Martin Hagland uh, in his book, This Life, uh, where he actually argues that a kind of atheism uh, centered around uh, democratic socialism might actually be more meaningful than a conventional religious life uh, Mm because there's a kind of finiteness to human existence, uh, which makes every choice you make significant. Now, I'm not saying either of these two things are the answer, uh, but they're experiments and again, trying to capture some of that sacral quality for materialism. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of that in the future. No, I don't you don't we think that we're we're kind of picking on idealism here, like kind of making it into a straw? I mean, all the QAnon stuff. Wait, you're and- Hegelian now? I'm yeah. not a Hegelian. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not a Hegelian, but I'm thinking that, you know, in a sense that, you know, the QAnon stuff, a lot of the the rhetoric, the propaganda that, that's coming from the right um, is actually not um, is not an idealism. I like think about this for a second. Like when when I when I see, you know, West Coast Straussians arguing um, against left the left. Um, the the thing that they're 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 wanting is natural right. 
Like they don't, they, they hate this idea of human rights and freedom from the, the enlightenment. They're, they're hoping for a, um, the natural right of this classical movement that you get from Schmidt and, and Strauss. So, well, there's a kind of idealism to that, though. Uh, and again, I don't think Terry Eagleton is right that wherever you see idealism, you see reaction, right? But definitely idealism is more potent on the political right than it is on the political left, sometimes even in unexpected places. Uh, so take somebody like Martin Heidegger, right? Uh, Martin Heidegger is definitely not a conventional idealist, right? Uh, he's very much focused on the interactions of the body with the world. Uh, but what differentiates his theory of history, big picture theory of history, mm. from something like Marx's is precisely this idea that ideas are what drive history forward, the kind of metaphysical frameworks in which we operate. Right. And in this sense, he sees all of history as a descent from the originary moment uh, where people were genuinely doing great philosophy, especially great people, down to this kind of mass culture where people aren't doing this anymore because we become too egalitarian, too democratic, uh, too focused on the world of the they. Uh, that's a kind of idealist narrative, right? Uh, and I think it's the kind of thing that we should avoid, if at all possible. So I don't think idealism has to I, be reactionary, but I it's prone to it. I have to say that I disagree, because part of that first question was directed at me. Why are you talking about myth? Why are you talking about propaganda? And really, if you want to call it class struggle, you could call it class struggle. Something like that is ultimately a numbers game. And even yeah. if you have the best theory that has ever been invented, maybe someone's doing that right now. They're coming up with the best theory. The best you can do with the best theory is like 5% of people because it's boring, tedious, and most people aren't interested in it. Yeah. I mean, present company excluded. But if you have a good story, and it can be a really dumb story, like an alien zombie was raised from the dead by his alien dad. Yeah, or a meme. Then you have 2 billion people mm -hmm. that believe in that shit. Yeah, exactly. So that's I why mean, I, I would say just for the numbers argument alone, you can have whatever theory, but if you're not persuasive, Meaning you don't have like an immediate buy-in for people who aren't going to listen to your argument. They just want to know, okay, I'm involved in this. I would yeah. say that early early 20th century Marxism is a lot more successful than yeah. early 21st century. Marxism. Right, right on the money pills. I think like 99% of the comments I have to address online is that the fact that I'm a communist and I have an iPhone. Yeah, I mean, I also just want to say this is purely anecdotal, but you're absolutely fucking right. I mean, I've met senior Marxist professors uh, who usually when they're drunk, but not always will admit to me, <laughs> usually with these tones of like religious concern that they've never actually read Das Kapital. Like I had a senior Marxist who was like, I've only ever read volume one and I've written so much about volume two. I couldn't, I've never actually read the thing. And I was like, don't worry, man. Nobody actually fucking reads those books. Like, <laughs> well, I wanted, to, good. Are, I wanted yeah, to just I come in with, I wanted to come up with something a little bit more concrete. Um, and it's comes, I I've been listening to this audiobook in my bicycling around Toronto, uh, by this political scientist, I forget her name, but it's called like how, um, uh, civil wars start. It's really oh, interesting that, new yeah. book that goes over like a lot of the, the kind of empirical evidence on, and one of the points she makes, which kind of like, I think links back to this, like, why can't the left have kind of propaganda? And, and it's like a very simplistic kind of answer, but it made sense to me, um, which is that, and this is kind of like verified over and over again in, in psychological research, that like human beings have an intense um, loss aversion. So like if you can get a, a human being to perceive that they're going to lose something or they're about to lose something, that is much more strongly perceived than the idea that you're going to gain something. 
So this is why the right is always going to have an advantage because the right is always going to be good at talking about all the things you're losing, right? They're always going to bring that. And the left is always going to have a disadvantage because a lot of our fight is like, what are you going to gain from having this? And human beings just cognitively, for whatever reason, are really bad at perceiving or experiencing the possible gain. Um, but they are hyper, hyper sensitive to the perception yeah. of a loss. It's like you have more to lose than your chains. You also have yeah. the fucking scrap. So the right, so the left, so the right is always going to win on that. It's like we're always going to have an uphill battle. So in that against sense, that cognitive bias. So Victor, it leads straight into the argument uh, in favor of nostalgia, like using nostalgia as a control mechanism for yeah. keeping everything. You know, for keeping your memories, keeping your childhood, keeping your icons, keeping your brands, keeping your toys. Like uh, this is this is a narrative of the perpetuation of the status quo. And of course, what 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 dialectical materialism talks about is change. It's inevitable change that is produced out of the resolution of contradictions. But then again, how do you build a narrative on this idea that is either not well received and is also very anti-idealistic in the sense, like in my reading, is it should not be, it should not rely on on idealistic meta-narratives to sustain itself or even to lead a movement. Like what yeah. is hard is to convince people to make sense out of this from a material angle, not from an idealistic angle, because from the ide idealistic angle, you were going to lose them very quickly. Well, I think, and I think materially um, in this book, which I've obviously about why civil wars erupt. And one of the things she kind of points out is like when those civil wars uh, erupt and when there is like revolutionary change, mm. it's because people have a very, very strong perception that they're losing something. Right. And maybe that's why. Because of right, hunger. The, like the, 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 yeah. And same with what happened right in, in Russia, like the October Revolution. Right. Like these are things where there's like a loss that is being perceived yep. and there is like a panic to get to prevent that loss and then possibly have something different take its place. Revolutions but, but come no, no revolution. No revolution has ever been started by, oh, you're going to gain all these things. All oh, these yeah, great no, things no. are going to happen. That's never happened in terms of yeah. this research, at least. Yeah. But, you know, there, there has to be uh, I'm going to bring this back to mythology. There has to be a level of balance. You know, Nietzsche says it best. If there's too Apollon, if there's too much Apollonian, there's mm. too much structure, there's too much rigidity. Right. Then, you know, we're stuck. We're stuck with the veil of Maya and then we need Dionysus to come in with drink in hand to just smash this this structure but you know there there is a level of there is something that we can learn from mythologies not in the nostalgic way there is this level of there is some kind of unconscious content and form that's passed on um there is this idea you know there's struggle there's strife tragedy that we can learn from um i'm speaking in this sense you know not as a shillingian but you know there is there are positives to mythology um, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm going to see Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. this weekend. Right. And when he says things like we need to get the billionaire class uh, out of our politics uh, and we need to make money work for people, uh, the intellectual side of me is like, well, you know, billionaires aren't really responsible for this. They're under the systematic law of coercion, just like Mark says, yada, 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 yada. But, you know, I'm also a practical enough guy to say that that's a helpful rhetoric, uh, at least in the United States, because it's something that resonates with people. So I'm not going to sit there and be doing that dweeby thing online, being like, Bernie Sanders is wrong to say that billionaires are the ones oppressing us. Actually, what we need is materialist analysis, yada, 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 right? Just mm -hmm. call it a call it a god oppressing you. Yeah, yeah it's it, it's weird to me because, you know, like in the in the structuralist movement, starting with Levi Strauss, right? Politics is the new mythology, right? Mm -hmm. and you can even see this in in Barthes, right? Like like his mythologies, like politics operates on that level of of 
of mythology creating creating a kind of narrative that you buy into and then and then using kind of iconography and and and, and memes and things you can grab onto and it's it's always strange the the way we talk like that's idealism in a certain sense the way we talk about it but idealism in in its original sense too is like a metaphysical doctrine we talk about it we talk about it like a, it's an epistemological position like correctness depends on what we think mm-hmm. whereas the idealism in its more metaphysical sense is like that what is real is composed of psychic like like what is real is of the nature of mind and that's the that's the idealism i i kind of prefer <laughs> i don't prefer the idealism of mythology and narrative and 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 that sort of thing cuz it's it's a, that that is more of an epistemological position where it's like it, it it focuses on intentionality and our interior life determining the outside world right you have this whole idea of representationalism like I think Rorty gives this example. It's like, does what you call atoms conform to the meaning of the word atom, or does the meaning of the word atom conform to what atoms really are? Yeah, it's and, Platonism. Yeah, and when you're in that struggle, you just choose one side. You're the idealist or you're the realist. My word atom is the way it is because of what atoms are, or atoms are because of what we call them or what we mean by the word atom. It's mm. it's an irreconcilable opposition and we just have to leave that behind because in the end it's just it's just representation of it's just epistemology it's just the basis of well for them it's it's a kind of scientism it's the basis of how we build and use knowledge but when you move to a more praxis-based politics you just have to leave that those, that and those labels behind idealism, realism, materialism, like in a way they're holding us back when they have those meanings of like what's right and what's wrong, what's material, what's ideal. You know, those are those are those labels. If I may, I have one last uh, patron message and it's go about ahead, work. Ahead. So it's kind of to do with this. um why why does not revolution happen and he's speaking specifically about uh you know people with what we used to call the middle class or like a, a white collar job why don't they want to revolt and i think it's a little bit telling and we can involve it and it's our last one so we can just go to the end here hey my name's rubel and i'm a teacher from england i wanted to ask you guys about the subject of work and ordinary people's relations with their bosses quote unquote leaders Um, Why do you think people are reluctant to blame their bosses, especially in white-collar jobs where a degree is usually necessary, particularly if the same bosses, individuals, are responsible for implementing policy that benefits the system at the cost of their workers? I think this speaks... The reason it brought it to mind is exactly what Victor said. If If you got 100K a year, your job is still probably exploited labor by definition, but... You have enough shit to go home to that revolution's not really going to be worth it. Yeah. I think that's the same And revolution answer. and revolution also crucially risks losing what you exactly. have. Are right? you going to so are like, you going to roll the yeah. dice if you've got a skidoo and uh, a nice Audi? Yeah. Which like is also as- another reason why people like in that book she also notices how like in a lot of really like developing countries, oh. poor countries, even though a lot of people are living in really bad conditions, as long as they don't have a perception that they're going to lose even more or lose status, they're actually like fine with their position, right? Like, so it's really hard to get them to mobilize 
uh, if they're used to their situation, um, unless you can show that they are about to lose something or that there's like a risk that they're going to lose even more of their status. And you see this happening in, you know, in a lot of African countries, those conflicts between, between the Tutsis and the, and the, the Hutu and the, the Tutsis or whatever, I think in, in, in Rwanda, because like, even though pre trying to transition to democracy, they were in poor situation, but like when they saw that they're going to lose their status, then like, that's like a, a flashpoint for revolution even though overall their situation was already yeah. really bad. There's, been, think- there's another problem also, and there's been some research in political psychology on this that speaks actually to Victor's point, but in a slightly different way, uh, which is a number of researchers have tried to figure out why it is that more people aren't motivated by concerns for, let's just call it extraordinary inequality, particularly class inequality, but you can apply this in a lot of different circumstances. Uh, so why is it that the working class doesn't resent the billionaire class, for example? Uh, and you have some neoliberal economists who try to insist uh, people don't care about things like inequality. Uh, you know, they should only care about how well they're doing relative to how they were doing, you know, a couple months ago. And obviously that's not true. Uh, but it turns out that the empirical research right now also doesn't vindicate the kind of Marxist narrative uh, that people are going to be concerned with, say, the billionaire class. Because the kinds of inequalities that people care about are usually far more local, right? So a janitor will care an awful lot more about whether or not a plumber is getting paid more than them uh, than they will about whether the guy who owns the plumbing company is making more than them, right? Uh, you know, a teacher at a university who's an adjunct will care a lot more about what the tenured faculty around him are making uh, than he will with the neoliberalization of education. Now, that's not to say that people can't become cognizant of those deeper inequalities if they are motivated politically the right way. It's just a lot harder to get people to instinctively think that way because it's not something that's apparent to them immediately, right? I think if, if we can interpret going against the bosses as unionizing or going on strike, and then, and then you frame that situation in, I mean, like we've been on strike before and what we get is like, oh, you're being selfish. You want more pay. You want higher pay. You're, you're sacrificing the greater good for your like local good. Right. So we're in this situation of, well, it's the economy versus like what you want. It's mm-hmm. the greater good versus your local struggle. And that's how we, in that's how we frame those types of situations. And I think we were talking about this on another episode too. It kind of, it can kind of translate as well to like blockadia and local resistance, right? Like you're going to stand there and block like developers from coming in to cut down this forest and the media or whatever, like anyone who's pro-development is going to say, well, these people are just trying to forward their own personal local good over like what's good for the general economy. And so if, if going against the bosses, the bosses are always thinking about the economy and what's good. Let's let's ignore that they're profit-driven enterprises for the for the moment. Like if you're gonna unionize, you have to change the narrative in that sense, right? It's not it's not the local good and your personal pay versus, you know, like the global economy. It's it's it it, it is a kind of in that point it's it, it's a kind of dignity and respect of like, like your struggle is the global struggle and what the bosses want. They want, you know, they want personal wealth, they want profit and they'll say they're for the the economy. And, and just framing it in that way is extremely problematic 
And I think so going against the bosses, if it's unionizing or striking, like what we're seeing right now with Starbucks and Amazon warehouses, right? Like that, that is something that should be, should be mimicked elsewhere because that's going to create, you know, the conditions for people to have better material existence as opposed to this sort of general notion of, of, well, if you go on strike, you're going to halt the economy and it's going to it's going to disempower people on a, on a more general basis. Like that's bullshit. I think you should frame it in, in such a way that your struggle is everybody's struggle. And I guess that's kind of, kind of a universalism in the, in finding that universalism in the, in the local struggles rather than going to that immediately thinking about the global economy. I don't know if I said that very eloquently, but that's, I gave it a shot. Saying we need a reframe. Yeah. yeah. And then how change, do you change the narrative? Change the that fucking question. narrative. Exactly. Right? But, but but for me, the problem here arises in this, in that there's nothing that escapes the logic of capital currently. Like, I think even these janitors and even these teachers, they don't, they don't know that they're thinking within the logic of capital. Okay. They're, they're almost like trapped into this. And, and that's why I really love the job example from the Bible. It's like they, you know, the the way the guy uh, framed the sentence and he framed the problem is almost like he's saying like, "Ah, I wish I could be a better worker if only I was paid a little bit more. You know, like like his his logic is completely trapped by capital. Like, is you could say from a very traditional Marxist analogy, he doesn't have class consciousness. He probably doesn't. Will class consciousness change his perspective of the world? I doubt it right now. Like I really doubt it. Like I, I don't think I don't think it, it's it's enough anymore for 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 people to actually pursue and drive real change. But what I do think is that his logic of the the reason of the world and the functioning of the world is the logic of capital. Like what he's just asking for more breadcrumbs. He you know he just wants a little bit more. Maybe if we unionize, we get some more healthy, delicious breadcrumbs, and maybe we get four instead of three breadcrumbs, and then we will be happy. And 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 again, it's hard to convince people to 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 create change, risk what they have, risk losing what they have to gain something that is uncertain, if if they're not hungry, if they're not truly hungry. And I'm not, I'm not talking about metaphysical hunger. I'm talking about real hunger, the the, the hunger that actually drives revolution historically. We we, we are in a in a crisis of uh, overproduction, not of scarcity. This is unprecedented. I think past revolutionary models are in a way insufficient. Because they they dwell in scarcity, and right now we are in in a problem of overabundance. We are overstimulated. We have excess of dopamine. We have excess of consumption. We have excess of goods. We have excess of possibilities. We have excess of entertainment. I think I think revolutionary politics have to take into account that that the context, the material context, is different from the past. In that that's why I like the the Zizek reading of uh, rereading Lenin. It's not rereading Lenin in redoing what Lenin did. It's rereading Lenin in, in learning from his failures, but also understanding that the moment we are right now is a new moment. It's, it's not a moment that we can look back into history and replicate past revolutionary tactics and apply them today. That's that's my that's my that's my reading of of this uh, this cry for help because it's true. I think a lot of people, and, and this is something I was having a conversation with Pills the other the other day. I think the one topic we need to to talk uh, with these people is about the issue of property, because we're we are coming to a point in life where the the main concern that is going to change the way people live and the relationship of power is that people are going to own nothing, 
And, and I think the relationship to property and ownership is going to be the determining force or power uh, variable uh, to, to determine the future of how material conditions will produce idealistic superstructures in the next generations. This from the guy with the iPhone, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean, I, you know, I if anything, hope. I feel like maybe, I mean, I hate to say it, but it almost sounds like an argument for accelerationism. I mean, not exactly what Diego was saying, but just in general, like in terms of, I was thinking about that when you were saying, you know, you need to feel the real hunger, right? And it's like, yeah. you know, how are you going to get that to happen well, unless you, shit gets way worse? You don't like, like my, my argument is more like, um, again, is is not us by intention producing change in the world. Is the world acting that produces the intention of changing us? You know, like, I, I think we got it the other way around. I think, like, like I'm much more inclined to this notion of, of Peel's explaining capitalism as a god in the sense that it's a system with his own internal logic acting upon the world. And we're just one more variable. We're, we're capital humano. We're just like one more variable in the system. We're acting out the will of, of, of a system that is that is beyond us. Yeah. It sounds like it could be a shelling argument. I will if, say, you, I, if you materialize I, I, freedom a little bit, it's not far off. Or am I wrong, Chris? Yeah, where's I, no, no. It's the I indivisible that, remainder I, there. I do remember I, at one point Kierkegaard said that the Book of Job is the most problematic part of the Bible, and Carl Jung agreed <laughs> with him. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it is a story where Satan comes and like God. You don't have the balls to let me torture this guy. God's like, oh, yeah, go away. Uh, and then he tortures this guy, yeah. did nothing wrong. Uh, comes back and he's like, you blisters. Yeah, you didn't fuck him hard enough. Let me fuck him even harder. He does. Then Job finally complains. Is like, this is really unfair. And God's response to them is, who the fuck do you think you're talking to? I'm the biggest, meanest, toughest fucking deity shit that you know. And you don't have any right to bitch about it. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> well, there's an exegetical point that the book of Job is actually older than the entire rest of the Bible, except yeah. for the first six chapters of Genesis. It's like a scripture from another time. It will make, it will make so much sense. Because that's the 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 zero level necessity uh, for for the structure of theology. Like you have to believe beyond any positive reinforcement, above all sufferings endurable. You have to believe. Like the, that's the ground zero for a theory to work. First, you have to believe. Then the, the theory will make sense. We could keep going. But why don't we not keep going? It's been yeah, we've already gone and we've already exceeded Diego's hard limit. <laughs> no, no, no. It was but, a but hard is, limit. But but this is too good. This is too good. Mm. I, will, I won't. I will not miss it. And no, by the way, the Joe a... point I can see on Wikipedia. Uh, scholars agree it was probably written between the seventh and fourth century BC. Fact check. You didn't Sorry. know I was going to pull that Bible knowledge out of my ass, did you? I just I needed to ask... verify. Trust but verify, just like the Russians <laughs> say. I was going to ask all of you what you all think of. Um, the protests with the with art galleries recently, um, with the per the girl with the pearl earring and um, Van Gogh's flowers. Um, what does everyone think about how these people are reacting? Uh, because I, I think it's badass. Because anything is better than nothing. Uh, I think it's I think it's it's strategically flawed. I think it's 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 going to create a backlash. I don't really think it's getting the intended effect of getting people to be like, oh, wow, I didn't know about materialism until you destroyed a painting like with no, a lot of history. They're, they're, they're like, throwing potatoes at the paintings. They're not they're, they're, like they're, throwing tomato yeah. soup at Van Gogh. Oh, wasn't there someone who, who put painting here, or who put paint on the like, like flash paint on a painting? I don't know. Here's they the threw idea. tomato they're, soup at a Van Gogh, I think. Or hold, a Mona hold on Lisa. a second. Oh, yeah. Their point is that art is protected. And nature is not. And, 
and nature is not. My point is, okay, why not why not move from the art and go attack banks then? If you want to talk about something that's protected, currency and money and capital is protected. Just There's no the, money in banks anyway. It's I think from measuring memes are coming to life. Memes are coming to life and this is a scary time to be alive. No, I think I think from a Benjaminian perspective, they're attacking the aura, right? They're looking at the Mona Lisa, they're throwing soup on it. It's like the erratic mode of perception where there's authenticity, originality. There's only one of something. It's a, they're attacking a kind of scarcity, but it's it's a it's a new mode of production and technological. It's from Benjamin's essay on the technological reproducibility of the work of art. But also, they're Good right. Essay. We we only have one world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I tend to agree yeah. with you, though. I think it's strategically flawed because I don't think that these efforts to desacralize or desublimate works of art is really the way to go politically forward. I think it's a lot more important to try to desacralize or desublimate idealized forms of life or reified forms of yeah. life, particularly things like the nation, the state, and other things like that. And I'm not really sure what Van Gogh has to do with all that. I'm, I'm going to be much tougher. I'm going to say, like, fuck them. Like, what is this dumb idea about stopping, like, carbon and stopping, like, fossil fuel? Like, this is this is ridiculous. I, I'm, I mean, I live in Latin America. If if we go green, we go broke. Like, that's so dumb. Like it's 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 incredible that people can can make such a childish analysis and just say like we have to stop uh, like fossil fuels right now otherwise we're destroying the earth. It's like yeah, bro, but like do you know how expensive food will be in the rest of the world if we stop like fossil fuel right now? It doesn't make any sense. No, that's why it's childish. Like even beyond the act, what they're what they're what they're acting uh, from and like what they're responding against for me is like a. It's like a very privileged point of view about, about the world. That's why I say like it's just memes coming to life. It makes no sense. There's no depth into, into the into the protest. I know. I mean, there was mm -hmm. we used to joke about that when I was living in Mexico because so, a lot of uh, AMLO's left-wing supporters were like, he should get rid of Pemex. I'm like, bitch, like he needs Pemex, right? Yeah. If we were to get rid of Pemex, where would all the corruption go? We'll, I mean, yeah, we'll starve. Are you guys well, crazy? Now we're right back in the mythology element of it again. It's like, okay, if you recycle, are you really saving the environment? Exactly. No, that's greenwashing, motherfucker. There's like 80 companies doing this bullshit. It's not our fucking fault, all right? Exactly. You got to stop those producers who are banking on this shit. <laughs> no, no category today, no category, absolutely none. There was a recent study from a friend of mine that is an economist in Spain. No category today consumes 100% of what they, what they produce. There's leftovers in everything that we produce in life today. Everything. Oh yeah. I mean, Every category is about waste. I know. I mean, the world throws out about a trillion dollars worth of food waste every single year, uh, which is astonishing when you think that there are 700 million hungry people in the globe yeah. and probably growing actually after COVID. Uh, I mean, it's, as you pointed out very accurately, we're not living in a problem uh, in a world that's characterized by underconsumption. Or sorry, or scarcity. Yeah, we're living in a world that's characterized by mass affluence, uh, and it, there's systemic reasons why people aren't able to access it. So, mm. and podcasts too. Yeah, way too many, way, way too, too many. way too many minutes, way too many people, way too many white people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Overproduction <laughs> of mental space. I'm gonna stop it. Let's stop it right now. In fact, <laughs> let's, throw right. let's throw right. apart. Let's throw painting at the wall at the, at the screen. Let's throw yeah. painting on this podcast. Don't listen. We're just contributing to the problem. But thank you for getting us to a hundred episodes, everyone. That was great. Um, and anyone, any one of you, if you want to 
send me some links to put in the description. I know Diego's got a book if you can uh, read on Espanol. Chris, new article. Matt, I'm sure 10 new articles or so. <laughs> and uh, uh, I have a new book that came out a few weeks ago. So hey, guys, I, I, thank I've you guys wanting... for coming. Anything else you want to just drop on at the end here? One one final thing. I, I've told you this before, but I would love to have you guys on my channel. Like I would love to give you the exposure, even if I'm the only non-philosopher here. I'm the true sophist. I, I can use my platform to give you guys the, the microphone. And there's a couple of million people that will love to listen to you guys. So anytime you want to do it, just let me know. I'll organize it. I will have you on my channel. It would be my pleasure for real. That'd be fun. As, as a group nice. or individually, let me know. You yeah, had me at millions. Actually, I wouldn't mind doing that. <laughs> you have to speak Spanish, though. Eric. No, That's the problem. No. One I, downside. I have, I have plenty of videos in Portuguese and in English as well. Una cerveza, por favor. Una Chris, cerveza, por what are your last word? Thanks for having me on. And this was interesting. Um, I'm not normally so immersed into politics. My my area is metaphysics and ontology and um, more of the environmental and ecological and climate crisis. So I was you just post a lot of art also. Mm. I do. I'm very I'm very inspired by art. So I was just listening to a lot of your arguments and points and yeah, and I'm not really good at the, I'm not really good at the whole podcast structure. I'm I don't know. Sometimes I I get like trapped in my own thoughts. So I think no, you made great. fabulous contributions. Great. Yeah, you did today. great. Huh? It's good to have a an eclectic mix because as that I listener said, it. plus you know we just agree was, on pragmatism these days. It was, you gotta fight yeah. this bit. <laughs> It you was a bunch of five. Sh- it was a bunch of five materialists picking on an idealist here. So you know, there you go. <laughs> that, that will make your your audience feel happy. <laughs> I just said idealism. Cough. I need a metaphysician. Idealism <laughs> is a conspiracy theory, and we need more of those. That's what I said. <laughs> yeah, <they're- laughs> we, well, I, I love Lord of the Rings. I can say that much. Hey. Not the show. No, you don't. I love everything, Lord of the Rings. The leave show? It the al- leave it the fuck alone. I love yeah. everything Middle Earth related. Just this leave is my how ch- I feel about Star Wars. That's right. I will, I will, I will defend it with oh. Oh. Wow. <laughs> He just pulled out swords He's for got those some listening. elven blades Speaking, there, of, yeah, speaking yeah, yeah. of Star Wars, Andor is... I hate Star Wars. Chris but Andor's pretty good. I Andor is so Andor is good. good. But you yep. know, the enemy in Andor is America. Yep. You got And George Lucas said as much, and they're going into like the bureaucracy and the banality of how this whole evil empire functions. And it is, it's, it's America and its colonies. It's a great oh, man, man. We should have a conversation about Dune uh, portraying the war in Afghanistan. Oh yeah. Spice. That was a brilliant spice. Spicy. All right. Happy. Thank you everyone. Thank you listeners for getting us to hundred. Everyone who showed up here today uh, was great. Was awesome. And thanks for the uh, inspiring, inspiring conversation. And everyone who commented also sending us those things it was fun. Yeah, it was we, great. We, great to hear. We, we could continue that. I love that. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. We should do it again. All right. Thank you, everybody. And goodbye. Peace. Good night. Good Bye. night. Cheers.